From PRX and NPR, I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to State of the Reunion. Like other dying Rust Belt cities, Utica, New York, was losing its population for decades until one resident had a brainstorm. This grew into a program that has helped almost 14,000 people relocate to Utica. Refugees from all over the world. But what kind of an impact did all those newcomers have? Here's a, a city in pretty far upstate New York where things are more rural and uh, homogenous. The stereotypes that people might be more threatened by differences, the stranger. Outsiders are also helping the city address long-standing problems like crime and drug abuse. But I had the three P's. I'll pray for you, I'll preach to you, and if that don't work, I'll call the police on you. Looking for answers outside the box in Utica, New York. That's ahead on State of the Reunion. But first, this news. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and when I was a kid, my favorite ride at Disney World was this. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. I loved looking at all the little automatons of different nationalities, waving and singing their little happy song. It was like floating through a world geography course, courtesy of the mouse. But you know, you can see that in many places in this country. There's the usual, Miami, New York, Los Angeles, and then there's the unusual. Monglava, Utica. Habari, Utica. Zdravo, Utica. Welcome to Utica, New York. Utica, ma minglava, lunok safare. Privet, Utica. Kiso, Utica. All right, before you reach for a map, let me tell you that Utica is about four hours upstate from New York City, not far from the edge of the Adirondack Mountains. It's a little city surrounded by dairy farms and woodlands. It's the kind of place you almost know, even if you don't. I mean, we've all heard the story before. A town that used to be booming with industry that's now fallen on hard times. But Utica has come at those hard times in an unusual way, which is what brings our show here. Now, every episode, State of the Reunion travels the country and looks at what makes community, who are the people that bring it together, and what are the issues they face. But before we dive into the Utica of today, we need to talk about what first made this city great, which has to do with underwear. Undergarments. It was like the underwear capital of the, of the world. Uh, woolen underwear and stuff like that. Um, Long John's being made out of here. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the, um, down the, the, the do-a-fold was right here, down the road, Mohawk. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was really a big deal. That's Doug Ambrose, a history professor at nearby Hamilton College and Utica history buff. All that underwear was made in the city's textile mills during the boom time at the turn of the century. Now, by the 30s, those mills began to shut down and the city sputtered. Then, in the years following World War II, Utica's leaders managed to jumpstart the local economy by attracting new industries. So GE came in. They were one of the big ones. And Univac, one of the first computer makers. Uh, Savage Arms, which had been here before, started to expand. Utica became one in a string of thriving northeastern manufacturing towns. Doug points at the intersection of two of the city's main thoroughfares, Broad and Genesee Streets. This corner right here, this used to be called the Busy Corner. At Christmas time, they'd have to get the Boy Scouts down here to direct pedestrian traffic. So this area was just, you know, a beehive of activity. It's still called the Busy Corner, but it's kind of like, it just reminds you of what once was and no longer is, because this is anything but busy. Standing at this vantage point, I can almost see it. The hustle and bustle of a growing little city now erased by the passing of time. By the early 1980s, it looked as if Utica had lost its steam for good. Where jobs hadn't gone south went overseas, and an exodus of people followed. Left in their wake, 
was Utica, once proud, booming, now empty. There was a bumper sticker here in the 90s that said, last one out of Utica, turn off the lights. With that kind of attitude, you'd think that attracting new residents would be pretty much out of the question. But all it takes is one person, one idea to change everything. I was working on the farm with him. I was milking cows, and I was raising a four-year-old, and I had a, a new baby. Roberta Douglas was a dairy farmer's wife, and her husband was a Vietnam veteran. In the early 70s, some ideas began taking root in her head. We were both very interested in everything that happened with Vietnam, and we both became very concerned about the Amerasian, what was happening to the Amerasian children, the offspring of servicemen, uh, after the Americans left Vietnam. Roberta got a little obsessed. She read everything she could and wrote letters to Vietnam, and she heard about a whole bunch of Vietnamese refugees who needed somewhere to go. Almost on a whim, she volunteered to help resettle one solitary Vietnamese man. She remembers the day they picked him up at the airport. Yes, I do. And I think it's one of the reasons that I determined that we needed to sponsor many people. I felt so sad for what, how lonely he must have been. I could put myself in, in this young man. I think he was about 19, 20. The local school superintendent heard about what she was doing, and so did a county executive and a couple local pastors. And suddenly, Roberta found herself in the refugee resettling business. The Mohawk Valley Refugee Resource Center was born. Now, she had no training for this kind of work whatsoever, but she had one thing that made all the difference, a city in desperation. Utica at that time had a decreasing population. A lot of their industries that employed people were closing and smaller industries were coming in that couldn't find the right personnel and the refugees, particularly the Asian refugees, were so good at some of these jobs that were available that they filled the void and there was a lot of housing available and it was a blessing for the city and the city, the people knew that and acted on it, which doesn't always happen. So why did it happen? Well, there's another piece of Utica history that primed the city to embrace these immigrants. And that goes back a hundred years to those textile mills. The textile mills in Utica at one time had almost, it was a 20,000 person industry. 20,000 men and women just worked in the mills. Frank Tomeno is a native Utican and a retired newspaper man who still writes a weekly column about the city's history. That 20,000 person industry demanded a constant influx of workers. The immigrants began coming from southern and eastern Europe, Italy, the Ukraine, Poland, Russia, to work at the mills and to work on the railroads. And as we approached the 20th century, they came by the thousands. Utica's population was growing about 2,000 a year. East Utica became the Italian part of town, West Utica, Polish and German, and after World War II, people kept arriving. This was an immigrant city. Well, I was born in the northeastern part of Germany before World War II. It was awful. I could not see a future in Germany. My brother came here before I came, and he was telling me how beautiful this country is, how beautiful the girls are. And so far, I said, yeah, I will come and join you. When I stepped off the ship in New York City, I had 50 cents in my pocket and one suitcase. 
but I had a job waiting for me. Leo Schwenzweier also had something else waiting for him in Utica, the German social club called the Utica Manicor. And back then, it was a place that helped newcomers feel more at home in this new land. In the Manicor, that was the meeting place of people that used to come here. The surroundings away, it's like Germany. It seems like I go back 50 years right now, where I came from, and it's beautiful. And the friendliness of people over here. So you can always strike up a conversation with anyone over here. Of course, I don't have a problem talking, so to begin with. Have you noticed that? Or sing. I'm My first kiss was at Utica Manicor. That's Leo's wife, Judy. He took me out on New Year's Eve. It was my first real important date with him. And I got my first kiss at Manicor. 46 years ago, that kiss has lasted. <laughs> very fond memories over here. And even though the plant Leo worked at for decades is now closed, the memory of the way Utica welcomed him and thousands of others is not forgotten. Nor is the imprint those early immigrants left on this town. You can see it in the Matt Brewery, started by Germans in the 1800s and still producing Saranac beer today. And the Polish services still held at some Catholic churches. You can even taste it. Here at Ventura's Restaurant, corner of Kasuth and Lansing Street in East Utica. Quarantine pastry shop on Bleecker Street in Utica. Oskonitsos. Very good pizza. We've had the same recipe since my, my mother started with my dad in 1943. Everyone calls it Oskos for short. Here at Puleski Meat Market in Utica, I think the most popular item is kielbasa. There is a regular smoked garlic, an extra garlic, ham kielbasa, turkey kielbasa, lakes kielbasa, bratwurst, and knuckwurst, dry kielbasa, cabanos itself, which is also called beer sausage. Mmm, beer sausage. And recently, the melting pot that is Utica has added some new ingredients. Uh, Mayura taste of Cambodia. Actually, very much similar to Thai food, but our food is uh, less spicy. And right now, we are in Tui's having Vietnamese noodle soup. That's good. My name is Mirson. We are at Secret Garden Restaurant in Utica. Mirson is Bosnian, but Secret Garden is an Italian restaurant. Well, with a few Bosnian additions. There's a chavapi. Those are like Bosnian sausage links that traditionally served downtown Sarajevo. Mirson was just a teenager when war broke out in the former Yugoslavia. He remembers getting so used to the violence around him, he didn't think twice about getting close to the fighting lines in pursuit of food rations. But the food of war, now that was horrible. And you have this, they weren't crackers, but they were this... I don't know where they got it from, but the box it says it was from 1976 Vietnam War. You know, they were packed in this aluminum boxes where they were sealed so they can last forever probably. You know, you would you would make everything with them. And then you would ground them down, make cakes with them, you would eat them like that. And they, you know, there was something that you get sick of. Escaping Sarajevo, Mirson and his family found themselves in Utica, going from those crackers to being surrounded by food of every variety. Each dish feels like a blessing. They opened the restaurant a few years ago, and within a matter of months, they'd won Riggy Fest, a food festival showcasing Utica's signature pasta dish, Chicken Riggies. You start feeling that you belong, you start feeling, recognizing friends coming all the time, and we started knowing how they like their food, and it makes you feel a little better, makes you feel like you belong to something. At the root of it, that's what we all want, right? Some place to belong. And as unlikely as it may seem, Utica has sprung up from its post-industrial blight to offer home to thousands of people who have nowhere else to go. 
And it all got started by a milk farmer's wife. 30 years later, this grew into a program that has helped almost 14,000 people relocate to Utica. 14,000 people. Peter Vogelar, who's now the executive director of the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees, says they've given Utica a new lease on life. The refugees find Utica to be a safe, uh, welcoming environment where they can start a new life and become a part of the fabric of society. And so they're opening restaurants and they're trying new things and they're you know, participating in civic society. They're looking at, you know, this is our future home. You can see the city's new diversity just driving around town, from the Buddhist temples to the Bosnian corner stores. It makes me wonder how this new landscape is sitting with the people who have lived here for generations. We learn what happens when a mosque wants to hold services in downtown Utica. That's ahead on State of the Reunion. If you want to hear and see more of State of the Reunion, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash so true. That's S-O-T-R-U. We're on Facebook, iTunes, and of course, stateoftheReunion.com. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and I live in Florida. So to me, the cold and snow of Utica, New York is, well, challenging. Okay, okay, that, that's an understatement. I hate snow. Hate it. There were days when my producer, Tina, had to drag me out of the hotel because when we were working on this episode, there seemed to be tons of the stuff. And I think I'm allergic. Not to water, just snow. So I can only imagine what it must be like to land here from a foreign country with a completely different climate and see Utica in the throes of winter. Our current arrivals are predominantly those who fled Burma or Myanmar uh, that went into Thailand, into refugee camps in Thailand. That's Peter Vogelar, executive director of the Mohawk Valley Refugee Resource Center. It serves as a cultural port of entry for thousands of refugees who've come to Utica over the years. We also have Iraqis that are coming that have been displaced because of the, the conflict in Iraq. We also have Bhutanese, a number of Bhutanese who are coming. Uh, we also have a small number of people from Darfur. Those are all warm places. <laughs> They're all warm places, yes. <laughs> True. This is a very cold place. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have a warm heart. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. And that warm heart, well, it shows up in full force at the Refugee Resource Center, where dozens of people take basic English classes. Look at my mouth. Bath top. Even cultural orientation classes. You know, everything from, you know, how do you work a light switch? You know, how do you explain to a family you can't communicate with that has small children hot and cold water? Tupperware is a brand new concept. Aluminum foil and saran wrap are new concepts. That's Jean Scahan, who teaches what could be called American Life 101. And she covers the gambit. Everything from what you would do with saran wrap to basic traffic safety. When I first started working here, I had an office that overlooked the parking lot. And in the afternoon, I would frequently look out and I would see these little Toyota Nissan sedans and the doors open up and it was almost like a comedy act of how many people would pile out of the car. And it kind of was terrifying. And so I started telling people, you know, you can't put 10 people in a little four-door sedan and they'd laugh at me and they'd say, well, that, that's the only car we have to move around in. 
These days, the Department of Motor Vehicles comes in four times a year and gives a series of lessons in different languages. Other lessons are more subtle, kind of things we'd never think to teach because we just take them for granted. But for these refugees, it's like starting all over. Seems like everything new, and you have to start everything in the beginning, and I have to grow up again. You you come here, you wake up, you open a fridge, you, you know. When I come here, I say, "Is this really going to be our home?" But you know, this is cool. I get my room, you know. Yeah, I'm born in such a place that in order to get some food items from the market, we had to work for eight days. Coming over here with, with no money whatsoever, buying a house within six months living here, buying a car within three months living here, owning a restaurant within seven years living here. I mean, you're talking about, you know, timelines where in other countries it's almost impossible to achieve. With the help of the Resource Center, an entire new population is learning what the word home means in America. But that doesn't mean it's always an easy embrace. Everywhere State of the Reunion goes, we ask residents to write a letter to their city. And in this letter, Rialda Albegic, a Bosnian refugee, encapsulates that struggle. Dear Utica, I remember approaching you for the first time, your flake-covered buildings, unassuming and forgotten by the travelers passing on to some grander, more satisfying destination. No one was there to greet me but you. Your tired skeleton standing against all or despite all, somber and sleepy, waiting for me to embrace you. Your perplexing quiet is what I would learn to know so well, the nocturnal tranquility that I accepted as both punishment and a reward. It became something comforting, something I would love and expect each and every time coming back to you. I knew nothing of you, Utica, and you nothing of me. Though you didn't know this, you were a grain of solace I sought to find away from my country's harrowing past. You didn't define me as a Muslim, a Christian, a Bosnian, or a Serb, but how quickly I arranged you. A dump, a black hole is what I called you. Abandoned and dilapidated is how I used to describe you. Yet your hands were always outstretched toward me, pure and white, always enshrouded in snow and tinted sun, seeking compassion and understanding making me bury my rotting, broken roots in you. And I see you in me, and me in you, Utica. Your wasted lots, rejected factories, and crummy shopping malls, oozing voices of those roaming your streets before me, the dreams of all of those that at some point have found you now within my reach. We may not have always liked each other, Utica, but I've learned to respect your hard-earned calluses, calluses I proudly realize with you. For I dug through your hard pavement. I peered into your windows and laughed with you and at times at you. And now I see, Utica, that underneath your shield of granite, steel daisies and irises are budding into the light. Best Rialda.
One of the places where the new Utica is coming face to face with the old Utica is on sacred ground, the city's houses of worship. Just like the city is changing in its makeup, so are the churches. And it can all start with one new family from a distant shore. Uh, They had recently arrived as refugees about two weeks before, and they told their host that they really wanted to attend a Baptist church. That's Reverend Mark Caruana. And when he became pastor here 12 years ago, the Tabernacle Baptist Church in downtown Utica was fairly typical. Its congregation mostly white and slowly dwindling. Then one day... In through the back door of our worship space walk a a family of nine individuals from Burma uh, dressed in traditional Korean clothing. And from that first family, the Korean just kept coming. They're an ethnic minority in Burma, also known as Myanmar, who faced persecution in their home country for decades. It was after the first family started coming to the church that Pastor Mark discovered this wasn't Tabernacle Baptist's first connection to the Korean. In um, 1828, 11 years after this congregation was formed, it sent a missionary to Burma by the name of Cephas Bennett. Cephas Bennett Bennett went to Burma because he was a printer, and he printed the first Bible in the Korean language. Today, most of the new members of Tabernacle Baptists are Korean. Their ancestors found Christianity through Bibles printed by Cephas Bennett. Many of our uh, Korean friends from Burma can trace their Baptist identity back uh, four, five, six generations, um, and I'm a Baptist of a second generation, so they have they have a much deeper connection to the tradition than I do. And now, Tabernacle Baptist has the opposite problem it did before. They're too big for their space. The congregation is routinely over 300 on Sunday mornings, and they've added a second Korean language service that's attended by over 100 more. Ba Pa has been in Utica for three years now. The first I came here, and I know a lot of Korean people. They came and then uh, participated with the and then I came here too. They are like friendly, and then I feel warm. They welcome us as their family. But change isn't easy. And as great as it is that the church has been rejuvenated by the influx of new people, it's hard for some worshipers not to miss what once was. Dottie Hayes has been a member of this congregation for decades. She runs the church caring corner, which collects clothes and household items to give to the newly arriving Korean families. How can I even explain to you? It was like church. <laughs> church should be. But like when the first person that came in, there was the Wynn family. And they had, I think they had six kids. And I mean, that's when they came in one at a time you get to know their names. But when they come in by the buckets full, I don't, I can't keep track of the names. Mm -hmm. So I really, I just go along with them, but I don't know who they are. So this is a part of the changing reality in Utica that people may be a little more hesitant to talk about. Still, Dottie, like so many others here, is trying to embrace the change. She chooses to sit in the part of the church where all the Korean members gather. Oh, I do miss the old days, yeah. 
can't help it. It's it is so much different now than what it was, you know. Oh man, but what can we do? Mm-hmm. You can't help it. So that's that's why I kind of sit back there with the Corins because you know I hate to make them feel as if you know they they're in their own little world. Right now I'm on the corner of Court Street and Broadway, and I'm right around uh, City Hall. Now, if you were to get on Court Street and just walk towards Genesee, one of the main arteries in Utica, you'd come across a building that looks like a church. Uh, It's got all the prerequisites, uh, stained glass windows, vaulted ceilings. But if you look a little bit closer, in the same place where you traditionally see maybe a cross or a depiction of Jesus, there's a crescent moon and a star, the symbol of Islam. And then if you look up a little bit further, instead of a steeple, you see minarets. We're just down the street from Tabernacle Baptist Church at another house of worship, a mosque built out of a former Methodist church Now in many places across the U.S., a new mosque opening might be cause for unease, even protests. But the story of this mosque here in Utica has a completely different narrative. My name is Ahmadine Mahmadovi. I'm from Bosnia and I'm 24 years old. Ahmadine is a young man, but by the time he arrived in Utica in 2006, he'd already graduated from religious school to become an imam. And that meant people turned to him. Now, at the time, all the Muslims in Utica were worshipping at another mosque, but it was cramped, and Imam Ahmadine says the Bosnian community was longing for a place of its own. And uh, we were looking around, and we figured out this, this, uh, this church. The city was on this church, and they were thinking, you know, to, to destroy this church, you know, because it was too old. That was Central United Methodist Church and um, had been sort of the high steeple Methodist church in the middle of town for years. Marilyn Baisa is the pastor at Trinity United Methodist Church in Whitesboro, the suburb where the congregation moved. It's something that's happened to a lot of older churches across the country. The congregation shrinks and eventually the building's just too big. She says the old church in downtown Utica was sold a number of times, but no one could keep it up and the city took it over. Reverend Bob Umidi is at Westminster Presbyterian, just across the street from the church. The first I heard was that there was conversation going on between uh, the mayor's office in the, of the city and this uh, Muslim group. And so that was the first thing that uh, piqued my interest. And, uh, you know, my first thought was, well, wouldn't that be interesting? Now, here's where things could have gone south. This is all happening right around the same time that the Islamic Center was being proposed at Ground Zero in New York City. And we all know how that debate went. But here in Utica, things played out differently. 
I got a phone call from the Utica newspaper, the Observer Dispatch, and, and they said, did you know that your old church is going to become a mosque? And my answer was, that's great, wow. So she was kind of surprised. She got very quiet and, and, and she expected me to say, I think, oh no, that's a horrible thing. And so she asked for some parishioners' names and I just kind of randomly gave her some names and she called them and they all said the same thing. They thought it was a great idea. Now, it may have made a difference that these Muslims were of European descent and not from Arab countries. We can't know how people would respond to a hypothetical, but there was definitely more than skin color going on here. Utica Mayor David Rafferro says that over the years, the Bosnian refugee community has played a key role in revitalizing the city. They're rebuilding Utica. They've been buying up a lot of the blighted houses, fixing them up because a lot of their trade are carpenters, contractors. You know, they've been fixing up and, and they would take you know, blocks at a time. If one of them would buy a house, they would buy three or four or five in a row and they'd all fix up the, uh, all the houses and, and they would actually, you know, revitalize a block. So the city sold the church to the Bosnian community for $1,000 and they immediately got to work on it. You know, there were things that they were doing over there that really kind of grabbed your attention and um, at one point they had like 40 men climbing all over the building. These were all volunteers from Bosnia who this was going to be their their place. When we are uh, working on this building, you know, uh, we, we took the cross crosses here, the the bell was here, and uh, I told the people who worked on that these are the symbols of the of the other religions. We have to respect them, and if uh, if you want someone to to respect you, you first of all you you have to respect him or, the, or her, you know. So what I did, I told them uh, we are going to call these people who already been the, the, these church members, and we are going to tell them we know we we know that these are the symbols of your church of of your faith. We just wanna we just wanna bring you these these things back. We were invited. The, my congregation here at Trinity was invited to come down on a Sunday afternoon and meet with uh, their congregation and they gave us a tour, explained you know, how things were different and how things were very much the same in some ways, and then presented us with the cross and the bell. We took a lot of pictures out on the front steps, and, um, and it was uh, just a wonderful day. They had cooked some food for us, and a wonderful day of just getting to know each other, really. Friday prayers at the mosque are well attended. Dozens of men kneel on the thickly carpeted floor of the church, now free of any pews. Women gather in the balcony upstairs. People are still bundled up in their winter coats from the Utica cold. When I think about this scene, I can't help but to wonder if this is an alternative take to the narrative being played out in this country today. One we see on TV, read about in the papers, hear on the radio. All across the country, communities are wrestling with the concept of religious freedom and trying to balance it with the fear of the other, the unknown. But here, in the heart of Utica, people of different religions and ethnicities have found a way to overcome obstacles, stereotypes, and differences to reach a common, holy ground. Coming up, a monk, a jam band, and a long journey of coincidence. Sounds like a bad joke, right? 
But it happened here in Utica. That's ahead on State of the Reunion. Support for State of the Reunion comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, a growing network of listeners, producers, and stations collaborating to make public radio more public. PRX.org. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and all this hour, we've been learning about the surprising change that's bringing Utica, New York, a shrinking Rust Belt city, back from the brink. Newcomers. Refugees from the world over. Now, when you get into the backstory of how some people ended up in Utica, it can feel like the world is a little less random than it might seem. Whatever you want to call it, fate, coincidence, what have you, it seems to be at work here, bringing extraordinary people to Utica through extraordinary means. For example, how else could you describe what brought these men together? My name is Al Schneer, and I live just outside of Utica, New York. Uh, I play guitar professionally uh, in a band called Mo. My name is Aga Nyana. I have been monk almost nine years. Aga is a monk from Burma, and how he met Al has a lot to do with the third guy. Yeah, my name is Steve. And uh, I live in Kohler, Wisconsin. You know, Steve and I have been uh, been friends for, for many years now. And Steve has gone on a lot of trips. And when he does, he sends off some missive from a faraway land saying, you know, here's a journal from my most recent adventure. You know, hope you enjoy it. And, and I usually do. Well, one of Steve's adventures took him to Burma in 2006. And as usual, he sent out missives to Al and his friends along the way. It was an amazing trip that taught him about the culture of this largely Buddhist nation, but also bit by bit about its political situation. You see, Burma has been under the control of a military junta for more than 40 years now. People are reluctant to speak openly and candidly, uh, criticizing their government or anything political. Uh, You don't know who's who. Uh, So it's just one of those places that has that dark element in play, and the people in Burma live with it day to day. And they know people have disappeared. But one day, towards the end of the trip, Steve and his brother went to a famous temple in Rangoon, a big golden pagoda. It happened to be Thanksgiving Day. So we went there to spend the day. And I needed to buy a lungi, which is a, you know, a piece of cloth that you wrap around your lower extremities. And the, it's a very traditional dress for the men in Burma. So I bought one. And you know, I'm not a small person, so I'm much bigger than a lot of the Burmese folks. So I was laughed at. The whole laughing thing became a, a way to introduce and connect with people. So Aga was one of those people who noticed I was wearing belongi. He thought it was pretty cool. So he came over to us and started a conversation, um, mostly to practice his English. The, I still remember the day I met with Thanksgiving Day. That the first time I heard about Thanksgiving Day through Steve. And we spent the better part of four or five hours walking round and round the uh, temple grounds uh, in conversation. Just before I talk with them, I have to look who is military intelligence or spy, so I have to make sure if there's nobody near me. Mm-hmm. So after I make sure, so I 
talks with them for about five hours in the pagoda. The experience was intense. At the end of the day, Steve gave Aga his card so he and the young monk could stay in touch. And pretty much, he expected that to be that. But only months later. They were matching for democracy and peace, but the tens of thousands of... Ordered by the generals who ruled Myanmar to stop their protest, the monks defiantly took to the streets... From Burma's holiest shrine, the monks marched toward the center of the capital. I've got to say, in the last 24 hours, there's been a major crackdown, and we understand something like 2,000 monks have been arrested, they've been taken away. And it wasn't long before that crackdown made its way to Aga's monastery. They came to our monastery at midnight. So when we were hiding in bushes, uh, we, we saw military soldiers who were patrolling with their guns. So at the time, many of mosquitoes... As he hid, leeches were sucking the blood out of his leg. But he didn't even notice. Because I was focusing on the soldiers patrolling with the gun. Aga fled Rangoon, hiding in the woods or in the houses of sympathetic families. Many other monks weren't so lucky. According to the numbers from the All Burma Monks Alliance, 280 are currently imprisoned in Burma. But Aga made it to the border with Thailand and got across. And that's when, at 10.30, one night just before the holidays, the phone rang at Steve's house in Wisconsin. I said, hello, Steve, this is Aga. Do you hear what is going on in Burma? <laughs> yes, I saw news. You know, the voice on the phone was very distressed, you know, asking for help, trying to explain what had happened, but very nervous, obviously very scared and very nervous. And it was probably one of, one, it was the most shocking phone call I've ever gotten. He was asking for help. And so the question then became, what can I do? Here was Steve, about to go on Christmas vacation with his family, and all of a sudden, he's trying to sort out what he can do for a monk he met once, more than a year ago in Burma, who's stranded and distressed in a foreign country. First of all, I just said, well, the first thing I could probably do is try to figure out how to wire him some funds so he could at least get some shoes and uh, take care of any other needs he might have. Steve managed to get him some money, and then he started looking into Aga's diplomatic situation. They got the news that Aga had filed his paperwork with the UN for refugee status and applied to come to the United States, but he was diagnosed with tuberculosis and forced to stay in Thailand for six to nine months for treatment. Now, here's where Al, who was in the jam band back in Utica, enters the picture again. He'd been following the email chain from Steve. And then at one point, you know, he sent me an email and he said, Hey, remember those, uh, those guys I told you about? Remember the monks? And, well, you know, I think there's a chance they're going to be coming to the country, you know? And I was like, okay, great. And then, like, the next thing, you know, we knew, it was Utica. Like, they were going to be coming to within 10 minutes of my house. And that's where they were going to be settled, settling down. I, I don't know. There was something really, really moving about that. <laughs> I arrived on January 28th. I mean, there are so many snows. In Burma, I, I never see this snow. So I was so surprised to see when I get out the plane. Within weeks of Aga's arrival, Steve came to Utica and introduced him to Al. And from there, Aga and the monks became a part of Al's family. It was great to see them play frisbee for the first time <laughs> in the backyard with my kids, you know, or to 
to pick up a basketball and play with a basketball for the first time and just to to do things like that you know my wife actually got like learning games like English uh, like vocabulary games and we used to play like different kind of word games with them just like board games just to help them with their their English as their friendship developed and Al learned more from the monks about what was happening in Burma he got an idea See, every summer, Al's band puts on this summer music festival called Mowdown. So why not have a special area of the festival dedicated to educating folks about what's going on in Burma? The only question was, would a jam band concert be an okay place for monks? It was very good fun <laughs> for us <laughs> to see many people dancing and drinking beer. <laughs> so it was also, also a little strange to see many, many women drinking beer. The monks had such a, such a great experience at the festival, <laughs> walking amongst all of the people and interacting with everybody there. And again, just huge smiles on their faces. And they, they started calling all of their friends. So they started calling other Burmese refugees in Ithaca and in Albany, and they started calling people and inviting them to Moda. Through the music festival, Aga and the Burmese monks worked on what has now become their mission, informing the American public about the situation in Burma, raising awareness, and keeping hope alive for their fellow monks back home who were not able to get away. In life, it's really easy to stay in our areas, the comfortable space we make for ourselves and our communities. You know, for example, you may go to work, drive the same route every day, see the same dilapidated area and think nothing of it because that's what it's always been. But sometimes an outsider can look at the same place and see something totally different. Utica, a town that has long seen itself as down and out, needed a new pair of eyes on one of its toughest neighborhoods. And that has made all the difference. When I first came in this neighborhood, they were telling me, you're out of your mind. It cannot happen here. This place is totally barren. Nothing good can come out of this neighborhood. Unlike most new Uticans we've been talking to this hour, Reverend Maria Skates was born and bred in the U.S., but she too has been welcomed into the city. Now, the good Reverend isn't your normal new resident who just tries to settle in and just kind of go with the flow. No, Reverend Skates is a force of nature. Like the sun, you can't help but get caught in her gravitational pull. There's a certain steel that reinforces her presence that was forged in the fires of hardship. I understand homelessness. I was homeless. I was out there on those streets in New York City in Harlem, and there I learned how to live. From those early days living on the streets, Reverend Skates knew she wanted to give back, help people who were in the same predicament. She went to Bible school, did missionary work all around the world, and when she was in rural Russia, she was trying to decide where to go next. That's when she got a letter from a friend who lived just outside of Utica. And he mentioned that there was a Russian community here, but more than that, there were people in need of help. Reverend Skates prayed about it and decided, all right, Utica it is. I began to ask everyone what was the worst area in the city of Utica. That's where we wanted to come. Everybody said Corn Hill. 
Now, Cornhill had once been the rich part of town, but by the 1950s, those folks moved to the suburbs, absentee landlords took over, and within one generation, Cornhill became Utica's ghetto. This whole block, all of it was just full of drug dealers, full of murder, trash, garbage, and debris. But Reverend Skates is a woman of vision. And one day, she was getting a tour of the neighborhood, and she pulled down one street where all the houses were clustered around a small park, and she knew this was it. One building in particular was a burnt-out crack house, but that's not the kind of thing to dissuade Reverend Skates. She bought the house practically on the spot. And from November 1995, I spent a couple of winters in here wearing coats, but positive changes come to our neighborhood. And you've done it basically one house at a time. We did it one house at a time. When we moved in here... Slowly, with the help of her partner in this venture, Reverend Meyer, they acquired the buildings in this part of Cornhill, gradually turning the neighborhood from slums into supportive housing, a place where women and children, former drug addicts, convicts, people who have no other place to go can live and get services. What were once crack houses are now an orderly complex of apartments, a food shelter is in one, housing for the chronically homeless are in several others. Reverend Skates has a vantage point on the whole neighborhood from her third floor apartment. This is my favorite window here. So I go here and I go, hello, how you doing? We're having a good time today, aren't we? How y'all doing? <laughs> she has some unorthodox ways of going about restoring the neighborhood and the lives in it like the bullhorn announcements out of the window. They never knew when we sleep, so they never knew when we were watching. And we, we were very proactive. I'll help you. But I had the three Ps. I'll pray for you. I'll preach to you. And if that don't work, I'll call the police on you. The three Ps. And that's what we did. Outside, residents are shoveling snow and ice, one of the many tasks people do to take care of their neighborhood. Reverend Meyer tells me the transformation of this area is a reflection of the work they're doing with individuals, working on change from the inside out. It's the kind of transformation she knows is possible from personal experience. You see, she herself used to be a drug addict. So I was one of those so-called troublemakers, was two and a half years in rehab. So you can change that much, you can restore that much. There's a lot about restoration. You know, and as we were able to change uh, the restoration, the houses, we believe the lives can be restored. We met some of the people working on restoring their lives. One of them was Miss Fowler. Now, everyone here is Miss This or Mr. That, a mark of respect to each adult. Miss Fowler has carefully straightened chin-length hair and a bright green Johnson Park Center T-shirt. She moved to Utica with an abusive boyfriend, and after they broke up, she found herself slipping into an old drug addiction. My house was a mess. Um, I wasn't taking care of my kids. And at the time, they were seven and eight. And they weren't going to school. And if they did go to school, they were um, wearing dirty clothes. As far as my government benefits, you know, all that went on the crack cocaine. When Miss Fowler heard of the Johnson Park Center, she was at risk of losing custody of her kids. Reverend Skates, like, she, her and Reverend Maya both, she's like, they're like the, the parents that I never had, you know, because um, my mother and father were both drug addicts. So from the beginning, you know, I was in foster homes until I went on my own when I had my first daughter at 14. So I know that I needed the structure, and the structure made me, it makes me a better person. Johnson Park Center is filled with stories like this. 
and after witnessing all the work the two ladies had done in Cornhill, I was a little surprised to go into their apartment on the third floor of the house where all this started and see them living in poverty. There is no running water, hot water in the kitchen sink. Our stove was leaking uh, gas, so we had to have the stove taken out, and so we microwave cook now. Um, the walls all cracked up, as you can see. We you use, see, um, in order to help the rest of the neighborhood transform, Skates and Meyer have taken practically nothing for themselves. This hardship has gotten even more difficult as Revan Skates became sick with pancreatitis and can't go up and down the stairs any longer. And that is when the community decided it was time she had a real home. A former hockey star and Utica native named Robert Ash heard about the work the Johnson Park Center had been doing, and then he heard how the two women behind it were living. And he went out into the community and had raised money, volunteers, donations, contractors, and they were building a house from the ground. <laughs> so he came to let me know. We do need you to sign the papers, and we're going to build you a house. Unbelievable. We actually could look through the window of the new house, but couldn't go in because it's in the middle of construction. As Reverend Skates explained the layout, she was envisioning using much of the space to help others. But Reverend Meyer told us the community won't let that happen. This place is for the two of them. Time for them to have something they've given so many others. A home. Even though Reverend Skates is not a native Utican, she fits right in, as do many other people who find their way here from all over the world. As we were leaving the Johnson Park Center, I was thinking about what Peter Vogelar, the executive director of the Mohawk Valley Refugee Resource Center said, just in passing, it may be cold, but this place has a warm heart. And I think he's right. Utica as a place, as a, as a city, you know, I think it's welcoming. If there were intolerance, it wouldn't work. I wish I had a magic wand and could wave it over Utica and say, believe in yourself for 365 days, because this town is very giving. There's a lot of what Utica was. Many of those who grew up in Utica have been here many years. They dream about the past. Uh, with refugees, you don't get that. Here, I didn't feel so lost. Here, I felt like I could actually make a life here and a living, but a life. Utica, New York. This is the land of promise. Utica, City with a Warm Heart, was produced by Tina Antolini, with help from senior editor Taki Telenitas. The rest of the Soju staff is researcher Marietta Sonotis, business manager Bree Burge, producers Laura Starcheski and Brenton Crozier. Our director of development is Stacy Cobb, and Ian D'Souza is the master of magnetism. So True is distributed by PRX and NPR, with major funding provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Al Edson, and remember, things fall apart. It's our job to bring them back together. Support for NPR comes from NPR member stations and from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, supporting the performing arts, environmental conservation, medical research, and the prevention of child abuse. MetLife Foundation, committed to promoting healthy families and good nutrition, on the web at MetLife.org, and the Park Foundation, 
dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues at parkfoundation.org. This is NPR.